I'm extremely disappointed uh, where we are. I think we are better than how we have played. And I have a great deal of respect for Charlie Montoya. And when this team is winning, he is going to have been a huge part of that. And I will ensure that he knows that. Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, July 14th, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Arden Zwelling here with Blake Murphy, who is going to fill in for Ben Nixon Smith, who is off this week. Blake, thanks so much. Also want to thank Mike Rogerson and Nick Andrade for helping produce. Blake, quite a week. Yeah. Not a quiet one in Blue Jays land. What's it like trying to cobble together a three-hour show mere moments after you found out the Charlie Montoya has been fired. Yeah, it was mostly okay, uh, except for the, hey, also an hour of your radio show is going to be on TV. (laughs) So normally, like, I'm there in, like, a hoodie and shorts or something like that. And I was working out when the news came down. And then my boss was like, hey, can you come in early? Like, we might need to start your show early. So I was in, like, a sweaty T-shirt. And they're like, we're going to put you on TV. Uh, luckily, the uh, the SN Bets crew came through with uh, oh nice some clothes for me. But the rest of it was, you know, obviously you scrapped the show that you had, and then I bug everyone like you to come on and and fill in fifteen minutes at a time. So you're saying that I got the same text message that about twelve other people in your phone got. Well, you, Ben, and Shy got the same text message. I, I think the language probably would have been different in the one I sent you, given the different relationship I have with the three of you, you three, and then. Uh, my producer, J.R. Manitad, was just seeing, you know, anyone who could do anything around the, the Atkins Schneider presser. You did a great job. It was great to be on with you. Blue Jays Talk Plus is the show that Blake hosts uh, every day at, like, I want to say uh, 3 till 5, but I don't know, sometimes 2 till 5, sometimes on the Fan 590, sometimes on Sportsnet 360. Follow Blake on Twitter. Uh, you, you'll find him pretty easily, and uh, you'll know where the show is going to be on any given day. And he does a great job, and thank you so much for, for filling in here. It's very obvious what we're going to talk about, at least the first half of it, and that's that Charlie Montoya has been fired by the Toronto Blue Jays. When you heard this news on Wednesday around midday, were you surprised by the decision, surprised by the timing, surprised by both, surprised by neither? Uh, Surprised by the timing, not surprised by the decision. I think, you know, we'd all kind of danced around that this was... A possibility this year, maybe even a, an eventuality. He did get that extension before the season, but it was always the most obvious thing you could change if things didn't go well. And I don't know. I never got the sense from outside that he was going to be the forever manager here. You know, you need a, a manager to help set the culture and on, on the the climb up, and then maybe a different voice or a different approach when things got serious and expectations came. The timing, though, was odd to me, not only because they had just dropped 9 of 10 on a West Coast trip. Like, that's the classic. The manager doesn't come home off this road trip. The coach doesn't come home off this road trip. And so when that didn't happen, and then the service for Mark Budzinski's daughter on Monday, I thought maybe they just put some time in between it. Uh, I know Ross Atkins said in his press conference that he thinks it's the most respectful move uh, to once you've made the decision to go ahead with it. But I did th- the timing caught me off guard for sure. I thought we were looking at a, an all-star break move at this point. Yeah, put aside even, right? Like those very real considerations. It's 11 days after the Julia Budzinski tragedy and only two days after her funeral. But you even think about the timing of a team that was four games above 500 at the time in a playoff position, Fangrass playoff odds well over 
80%. I mean, pretty much like as close to first in the wild card race as they were to being out of it. Like, so, you know, very much in the hunt. Like you said, following a win on the first game of a six game homestand with the all star break looming, with the draft in four days and the club being really preoccupied with draft prep this week with the trade deadline in three weeks and trade deadline prep having to be done now so that you can actually like make calls and frame values, understand where your opportunities are going to lie less than four months after you extended the man (laughs) for a blue Jays front office that preaches the importance of continuity and collaboration and thinking things through and gathering information and being really considered and deliberate. The timing absolutely is unusual. It's not lost on me that the move was made right ahead of four games against maybe the worst team in baseball. That's coming in with half the worst team in baseball. (laughs) Yeah. One, two, three, five, seven, eight. I think of their lineup missing for this series. And maybe they didn't know that fully, but I do think, you know, a front office picks these times intentionally and you look ahead and not only like you're not going to win one out of 10 forever. You're probably going to be better than four games over 500 eventually. But you also pick a soft spot where, you know, John Schneider's in a position to succeed coming out of this. Yeah, the timing is the timing is odd, though. It kind of runs counter to a lot of what this front office has done from a people management and kind of empathetic standpoint from a, hey, there's a long-term vision and there's nothing that can take us off of that vision standpoint. And then also, like, we've heard for a while that, and this has been used as a criticism of Charlie Montoya as well, but, you know, he doesn't actually have that all that much power. Like, like the front office dictates some of the strategy and tactical stuff. It's a very large coaching staff with shared responsibilities. And then it's like, okay, well, why now versus another time if he's already not handling a ton? Uh, the timing is odd for sure. The extension I could at least get because coming out of two pandemic seasons and, and you kind of steer the ship through that, you want to reward a guy a little bit. I think only one year on the extension was actually guaranteed. But in retrospect, it feels like a move they always knew they were going to do at some point. So the waiting on it is uh, a little odd. Yeah, and I think there's a lot in what you just said that really kind of gets at the nut of why this happened philosophically and fundamentally and behind the scenes charlie montoya ultimately was just not the right fit for this job long term and it's like you said it did feel inevitable that this was going to happen but i don't think it's for like the reasons that a lot of people would believe right like i don't think it has anything to do with tactical decision making i don't think it has anything to do with bullpen management I don't think it's because he's not fiery enough. He doesn't care enough. Like Charlie's extremely caring, right? Like he's extremely dedicated. He's pretty selfless as an individual. I mean, he was engaged. He's professional. He cared a lot about this team and his players. I think what he had trouble navigating was just these extremely perilous waters that every manager in MLB has to navigate these days between managing up to your front office and expectations there and then managing down to your clubhouse where expectations are going to be different and then also being your own man and asserting your own beliefs and finding a balance between those poles and those divergences i think charlie really desperately wanted to please everyone and wanted to keep everyone happy and keep everything 
together. But I think that when you're losing and when things aren't going well, frustrations do rise and tensions do reveal themselves. And like things start to fray when you're spending eight to 15 hours a day with the exact same people every single day. And it can be hard to keep everybody happy and to please all of those people. And I think that like as that pressure built above him, below him and and around him as those losses mounted as the team struggled i don't think the message was working <laughs> like i don't think that the management was working i don't think there was anyone that wanted to continue hearing him say we're playing good baseball this game's about pitching a defense you know what i call that tough frigging luck right like the the lines we've heard for years like to your point like it's one thing in 19 when it's a transitional year 20 and 21 which are like these weird singular unique covid circumstances but like here in 22 like charlie needed to sort of evolve his approach and needed to sort of change with what was changing around him and he needed to maybe do the impossible and somehow find a way to keep those above him and below him happy when the results weren't there and to keep the faith that he could like keep this thing moving forward and turn this thing around and i just think like ultimately i don't think he could like i think ultimately he just like fell back on what he knew and what had worked in the past and it wasn't going to work anymore and i think for that reason like he lost parts of his clubhouse i think for that reason he lost faith from above that he could win it back and that he was the right guy to push this thing forward and that's just an awful and impossible position to be in as a manager and ultimately one that's just untenable long term it's an awful position to be in as a kind of middle management in any industry you know you you read organizational behavior books or social psych books and one of the most difficult personalities to have long term is people pleaser and people pleaser is maybe even a misnomer because it's more of a displeaser avoidant it's not so much about pleasing everyone it's like you don't want anyone displeased and when you do that the result is that nobody's pleased right because you're trying to help those above you or, or do what the party line is you're trying to be the conduit between that and the lower level. You're trying to keep the lower level happy. And it's one thing in an industry where the lower level people don't make a lot of money and there is a very clear salary structure that follows the chain of command and the power structure. But in baseball, that's not that. Like Charlie Montoyo made a tenth of what Yusei Kikuchi is making this year. To use an example of a pitcher who has not had a big impact on this team, and that kind of shows you the economics of baseball. And also, you know, you made this point in my show yesterday. The money reflects the power and the importance. I think the other thing, too, I haven't been in this clubhouse enough, uh, in part because my show is 3 to 5 p.m. <laughs> and that is when the clubhouse is open. It's a little hard to get down there. But I've been in locker rooms uh, a lot over the last handful of years. And maybe this is, you know, was specific to the Raptors for a while or... Maybe it is a universal thing is that the constant messaging is good initially. It's a culture building thing. It's a what are the how do we work? How do we communicate? How do we approach the game? The consistency of message is really important to lay that groundwork. But especially when it's a super positive and just keep doing what we're doing, just keep doing what we're doing message that has a time limit. Like it has an expiry date and there are huge expectations on all of these players individually as well. A couple of them just got big contracts. A couple of them have big contracts ahead. You know, they talked a big game heading into this year and they know they're underperforming. And I do wonder if at a certain point in year, 
you know, four of hearing the same message from Charlie Montoyo if it wore a little thin because what they're doing is not working. And the positivity of like, trust the process, pound the rock, pound the bongos, whatever, <laughs> whatever Charlie's version of that was, wore thin as players maybe felt the expectations more than the manager did. It's not an easy clubhouse to manage, man. I'll tell you that much. Because you think about, you know, how many different just personalities are in there, right? You got young players breaking into the big leagues. You've got young players who also happen to be massive superstars. You've got premier MLB talent on huge contracts. You've got veterans who are set in their ways. You've got a lot of disparate personalities. Like, remember how much was made of turning over the 2015 and 16 teams to sort of rid some of those enormous personalities, like your Donaldsons and your Bautistas and your Strowmans, and allow this group to set its own culture, its own tenor? Well, like, this next wave of players has big personalities too like they're professional athletes you know they're they're professional athletes because they are uber competitive type a cutthroat individuals like they're by nature that's that's what it takes to compete at this level like the intensity of competition at the highest levels of professional sport is profound so these guys are always going to have big personalities as well and i don't know that it's possible for any individual to have the eq required in order to keep everybody happy in a major league clubhouse with 26 different individuals in there especially when things aren't going well and like that has to be said like every blue jays player said to a man like look if we played better this wouldn't have happened and that's true like if they played better we're not having this conversation today if they won more games we're not having this conversation today but they were losing games they were losing games that they ought to have been winning and they were losing games in sort of own goal fashion too often and it's not just this oh, yeah. season it's it's last season as well it's this weird situation where you have these amazing individual performances over the last 18 months last season and this season last season you had the Cy Young and the MVP runner-up one of the best second base power seasons like we've ever seen you had Bo Bichette leading the AL and hits Jordan Romano one of the best closers in baseball this year you've got this insane Alejandro Kirk breakout where he's not only the best hitting catcher in baseball one of the best hitting players period you've got Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman atop your rotation I mean you've got these amazing individual performances that aren't all coming together to create a whole that is winning and it's very hard and nebulous to figure out like why that is not the case and very clearly the blue jays are saying like by quote from ross atkins on that podium yesterday it was necessary that charlie montoya was removed from this position so clearly that is telling us that they felt that he was in the way of all those parts coming together i would not have made this decision if it was not necessary is something that ross atkins said so clearly they felt that he was holding them back as far as i know like charlie played his role in this machine he played his role of what you want from a modern manager he took the line of advice from the strategy and analytics folks like he managed the workloads based on what high performance felt was optimal for player health he followed the colors on that bullpen card right so like he collaborated like he did his part like i almost feel like it's just an impossible position for anybody charlie it's not your fault like it's the system's fault i don't think that anybody could have been in that role for as long as he was this season with the personalities that he had all around him and survived and if that individual exists with that kind of eq and that type of management up and down like that is a highly capable and skilled individual because i think the system in MLB modern structures is not set up favorably for managers. No. And this is, you mentioned nebulous and like, that's kind of 
what the manager's job is at this point, right? It's like it, it was one thing, you know, even 10 years ago, and then certainly further back than that when baseball was rampant with decision-making that didn't line up with what the data actually said. And, you know, you had the odd manager who bunted too much or the bullpen usage was just completely out of sorts or small ball being left behind or whatever, not adjusting to to the larger home run environment. All those things were there. Obviously, it's more efficient and optimal analytically, but it's a little bit of a detriment to baseball maybe that, you know, managers are pretty homogenous. Baseball team styles are pretty homogenous. What that results in is it gets really hard to evaluate a guy like Charlie Montoyo, right? Because you don't like the lineup. Well, that's probably coming from above, at least to some degree. You don't like the resting of George Springer. That's definitely not a Charlie (laughs) Montoyo thing. You don't like that Hyunjin Ryu tore his UCL. I don't think Charlie did that. So you go down the list. It's like, what is he doing? It's like, okay, well, he probably has some autonomy over bullpen choices within a certain range and like the hook on starters and things like that. But really, you know, it comes down to kind of, well, here are expectations and here are based on the talent level where you thought you'd be. And this is what's actually happened. And that gap, fair or otherwise, can be attributed to variance and luck. It can be attributed to the stuff that we can't really grasp tangibly that happens over 162 games. And it can be attributed to the manager. And that's not fair, and it's probably not 100% accurate. Like, I don't think the gap between, like, if you got two and three and X equals one in between them, I I don't think Charlie Montoyo makes up the entire gap, but it's the easiest thing to fix. It's the lowest hanging fruit, and this is where it gets hard not being in the room. But, you know, if you're going to frame this as merit-based for Charlie, while all the things that a manager typically controls are being collaborated on. You don't have the autonomy there to really hang your hat on that. So what you're being evaluated then on is what is that clubhouse like? Is that team visibly frustrated and pressing in a close game? Do things snowball on you if one thing goes poorly? What is the feedback from players and other staff? And that's the area that they obviously found him wanting because it's not like they used a different batting order yesterday. (laughs) Like, that's not it. It's hard to evaluate. It's maybe a little unfair, but that's where they're making that decision is in that kind of soft gray area. But in that way, like even if you're not close to the team, you can reverse engineer this back to what it was about. Because like you said, it's not filling out the lineup incorrectly. It's not not following the bullpen advice. It's not a tactical reason the Blue Jays are going to play the exact same way. They're going to use their relievers the exact same way going forward. No, come on. They did a hit and run yesterday. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're going to pull their starters at the exact same time. It's obviously not a misconduct decision. Like, Charlie's not a bad guy who did a bad thing. So, like, you eliminate all that stuff. You realize, oh, wait, and this is a guy who is following the advice and doing what the club wanted him to do and playing his role in the machine. So that only leaves your management of players and your relationship with the players and your club. It's like, that's the only thing that it leaves. So Ross Atkins wouldn't answer the question of why up on that podium yesterday. And I get it. That's 2022 sports PR. And I think it was unsatisfying, certainly for fans to not hear the why, like to hear the, yep, we had to do this. And we felt in order to take the next step forward, it was a decision that was necessary to make, but we won't tell you why. But it is also really easy to reverse engineer back to why that is. And I just think it's such an impossible situation for managers these days. Because if Kevin Gosman is upset at you about the amount that you're shifting behind him, and he keeps seeing ground balls get hit against him the other way, and he's saying, why are we shifting? Why are we doing this? 
and he's mad at Charlie about that. And then Charlie has to go up to the front office and they're saying, well, the shifting only works if we do it every time over a long enough span. Like that's the whole point is this will play off in the long run, but we have to do it every time. Like we can't just do it when we feel like it. Like this is the sort of thing that you need to give a lot of runway to work. Like those are really two contentious things. Like if Alec Manoa is upset about being pulled from a start in the sixth or seventh inning when his pitch count isn't that high and he's cruising because the club feels like, yeah, we'd like him to save some bullets for later and we want to protect his arm and, you know, prioritize like load management and longevity and health with him. He's upset at Charlie about that. Charlie goes up to the front office and they're saying, yeah, no, this is, there's a purpose for this. There's a reason for this. Like we have research that shows us why this will work over the long run. And your job is to foster the buy-in to that at the lower level. Right. And I don't know, I certainly would not be qualified to do it. You know, it extends to, um, you know, like you mentioned Springer, right? Like if if George Springer's unhappy with his days off and with his rest days, he's going to direct that discontent towards his manager and his manager's how's he going to run that up the chain? Like we know where that is coming from. Right. So a lot of these things are in direct conflict with each other. And the manager is just like stuck in the middle and the manager might have his own views of how he thinks things should go, but he's trying to please everyone up and down. So it just feels impossible to me. And then even beyond that, you start having some of the things that we did see crop up in play. Like I mentioned the own goals. I mentioned, you know, some of the lapses in on-field judgment that we've seen, whether it's players getting doubled off in situations that they shouldn't, players not having their sunglasses in the field and, you know, letting fly balls drop in, balls that are going through mitts at first base, like all these little things. I thought that, you know, Guillermo Martinez getting chucked from a game before it began was a bad look on a manager really to kind of to see Mm -hmm. that happen the amount that charlie's coaches were getting run from games was probably not a great look schneider got tossed once last year too right like late august last year i think too he got tossed from the bench pete's been tossed a few times this year not a great look on a manager, obviously, Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s um, demonstrativeness uh, a couple of nights ago, the night before Charlie Montoyo got fired, actually, uh, you know, over the challenge that was made that he didn't think should be. And then some of the shots you saw on the broadcast of Vlad in the dugout, that wasn't a good look on a manager. A second players only meeting within a span of, I don't know, a month is not a good look. And hearing about it, learning about it from the manager rather than from the players, also. A bad look. Sounds like you got another one on the tip of your tongue. I more wanted to ask you, and I absolutely don't mean this in a way of like any of these guys are coach killers or anything like that. This is strictly from a performance perspective. It's funny, like a manager's job, we really evaluate on the fringes of stuff, right? Like, do you use the sixth inning guy in the right spot and the right leverage? Like, is Trent Thornton pitching in the right leverage? Is Bradley Zimmer's pinch run and fielding replacement? Is the timing right? But really... You know, a lot of this is going to come down to are your best players playing well? And I look, and some guys have overperformed, but Teoscar Hernandez's WRC Plus is down 11 points this year. George Springer's is down 15 points. Bo Bichette's is down 17 points. Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s is down 35 points. He's still a very good hitter, obviously, but all four of those guys are having worse seasons than, than last year and worse seasons than we'd expect from them. Shared credit, shared blame, all that stuff, but... Your four most important offensive players are all underperforming. I don't think it's that hard to draw a line between that and something like a players only meeting, players only meetings. <laughs> I kind of wanted your take on on a manager gets 
evaluated with the kind of niche stuff, but in reality, their four most important players are underperforming. And I think if I had to distill a manager's job like down to one line, it is put your players in the best possible position to succeed. That's all you want because then if you employ really talented and skilled players who are really good, like yeah, they you put in the best possible position to succeed. They should succeed more often than not, and you, more often than not, you should win more games than you lose. And as you pointed to, those players key players on this team, really important players with established track records are all underperforming what you would expect. But I don't think you can make an argument that they weren't put in the best possible position to succeed on the field. It's not like Charlie was hitting Vladimir Guerrero Jr. eighth. <laughs> or, you know, like I think that like these guys are put in the right position to succeed on the field. So then that leads us to, okay, is it something off the field? And we know the environment matters. And we know that clubhouse matters. And so was there something about the environment? I don't know. That's for the Blue Jays to say. And like I said, we didn't get that answer of why. And we didn't get that insight that we would have loved to have you know, heard from the people who made this decision. But again, it's like a process of elimination, reverse engineer thing of like Teoscar Hernandez, like hits in the heart of this lineup every day, right? It must be something environmental because the deployment of these players, I think, put them in the right position to succeed. Yeah, it's a tough one. And uh, <laughs> it was the most predictable thing ever that Vlad would homer yesterday. Yeah. Uh, just like the contrast of the frustration the night before, seven swings and misses, three swinging strikeouts, and then even the hit he got was only after, you know, a botched foul ball. Um, and then he homers right away. That, that was the most predictable thing ever. But we talk about the coach bounce or whatever, the coach change bounce, a lot of that is just regression. Like, this team wasn't going to be that bad. Like, I just laid out all, the four best players on the team are all underperforming what we normally expect from them. That's going to round out a little bit no matter what. But I do wonder if this expedites that or just kind of shakes it into place. I guess this is kind of my last thought on the Charlie thing that I haven't expressed yet on my show or here. And it's, you know, we heard for so long how much the guys liked Charlie and how well-liked he was around the organization and stuff like that. I do think that in a situation like you've lost 9 of 10 and it's a lot of internal stuff, one of the things that as a front office you can kind of use or dangle to motivate is, well, if you really like this guy, you got to perform because his job's on the line. And that obviously wasn't enough there, right? So lost the room is kind of a, a heavy term, but it certainly seems like the message wasn't getting through anymore. I think you're right that the Blue Jays are going to play better the rest of the week than they have recently, regardless of like if you're managing them, I still think they might sweep the Royals because the Royals, as you said, are one of the worst teams in baseball and they're missing five of their top seven players in terms of plate appearances. They're missing not only their starting catcher who hits cleanup, but his backup. Yeah. They got a little fortunate that today is the only day that they have to do the either call a guy up from AAA or bullpen day. Like the two starters who didn't make it. Only one of them was going to pitch this series anyway. But yeah, like this lineup is going to be the Omaha Storm Chasers lineup. You're missing your three best qualified hitters by WRC plus and four of the top five. 
right? Like the Blue Jays should absolutely run the Royals and they just might. And there's a lot of like, you know, the worst parts of just baseball discourse who are just going to say, oh, it's because, you know, the boys were rallied, you know, like because they finally got rid of Charlie. Like that's not going to be the reason. Like you said, like this team is bound to have some positive regression going forward anyway because of how many individuals are underperforming their potential. Like there's a reason why the Blue Jays have really strong fan graphs playoff odds much stronger than other teams that have the same record as them i.e the boston red sox because individually you look at the projections for these players and they should do better going forward than they have to this point this season they have underperformed but that's also sort of been the problem for the last year and a half is that you've got these very talented players these players project very well and like the whole has not equaled to like the sum of the parts. It's been sort of baffling. That's the biggest question around the Blue Jays is like, why isn't this working? <laughs> you know, and last year you could point to three homes, right? And you could point to all that disruption. This year you don't have that same thing to point to. No, and the other thing you could point to last year is at least the run differential was really strong. And I know that doesn't, like, you don't hang a banner for that. But if they looked at the true talent of that team and the way the team performed, it's like, yeah, that's a 97, 98, 99 win team. You got a little unfortunate and you had the multiple homes thing and you're a young team that maybe didn't know how to pull it out. You look this year, well, you just went through that. I've seen people make the 2015 parallels of, oh, they were 500 at this point. Yeah, they had a plus 99 run differential (laughs) too. The Jays have barely scraped by even. They just haven't been as good. And like you said, the whole is less than the sum. There's like a anti-synergy there. You got to figure it out because I don't think this front office has it in them to make like some sort of franchise altering move at a deadline. You're adding, you're tweaking. It's not like you're shaking up something dramatic uh, with the guys who are here between now and August 2nd, I don't think. It's uncomfortable for people like us who like to have evidence to support our claims, right? And who like to quantify things because this is very much like ephemeral. Like this is very much in the realm of the intangible, right? This is very much like the vibes. (laughs) Forcing Arden to have feelings? This is terrible. Shouldn't speak for you. Certainly not how I'm wired, but I feel like you're you're pretty much the same way. Like I, I feel like it's on this front office now to make this club better like you now need to address on field like okay you've thought about the clubhouse and the vibes and environment okay now like let's build a bullpen and now let's get a depth starter who is better than casey lawrence and thomas hatch which is the other thing that you know john schneider's not only going to benefit from you know jackson coers pitching tonight and the offense can get right against him and the the regression that's coming but like i don't want to overdo this comparison but like Nick Nurse got the head coaching job after Dwayne Casey, and then the team went out and got Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's going to have more bullets, I think. I, I mean, if he doesn't, then Ross Atkins is uh, taking quite the gamble on his own job security, I think. He's going to have a better roster to work with moving forward as well. He should, right? Like, the Blue Jays should be active this deadline. I expect them to be. I don't see why they wouldn't. I know you said, you know, comparisons season to season aren't worth a lot, but the Blue Jays were in the same position. You're still tied for a playoff spot. Yeah, you're tied for a playoff spot, and you're in the same position at this point this season as you were at this point last season. And last season, you were aggressive at the trade deadline. And you went, you found a controllable starter and you traded really like premier at the time prospects for him. Yeah. Don't look at those uh, mid-season top 100 updates if you want to <laughs> yeah, feel good about former Jays prospects or current Jays prospects. Yeah. It's funny that like there's two ways of reading that. It's like, well, I mean, why did you draft 
Austin Martin and trade for Simeon Woods Richardson in the first place, right? It's like, oh, you guys made a mistake there. And then there's another way of reading it of like, oh, you sold high on those guys. So good for you, right? Like, I, <laughs> do we read this as the Toronto Blue Jays indirectly admitting they made a mistake in hiring Charlie Montoyo and made a mistake in continuing to have faith in him this spring to the point that they extended him three and a half months ago? Is that a mistake or are they doing the right thing by removing what they believe was an impediment to them moving forward by making that decision decisively now? Yeah. And you run into too, like, yeah. And you don't want a front office to operate with a sunk cost mentality, right? Like, like if you think John Schneider is going to be worth one win of difference over Charlie Montoya the rest of the way, you absolutely can't not make that move because, oh, we just gave him an extension. You know, to use another cross-sport comparison, it's like Leafs fans get excited that Kyle Dubas has made a couple good moves to get out from under contracts that he just gave out. <laughs> exactly. Like, you just gave those contracts, and yeah, there's good value getting out of that contract. It's like you make mistakes, but you've got to move off of them if it's clear it's a mistake. So if that is how they evaluate, if that's you know how they feel then sure you gotta you gotta move off of it i don't know that they'd say it was a mistake to hire him in the first place i don't if i'm remembering the reporting around that time i don't think he was their first choice but also you could craft the story that he was the right manager to get these guys to the majors and establish a baseline and then now you need something different that's the front office friendly spin. <laughs> and yeah, if, if I had to sort of summarize the yeah, the first half of this podcast, which has been extremely Charlie heavy, it's that, to your point, it's extremely hard to predict human performance going forward and is extremely hard to manage humans and human emotions and human reactions to things. And I think that's, that's yeah. basically how we got here is that you can't predict how humans are going to perform on a baseball field, on a, on the rink, on the basketball court. And when you're dealing with humans every day and a manager of humans, that's a really hard thing to do, a really hard thing to sustain. Yep. And then sometimes you're at a loss for how to fix it. And one guy in a certain chair is the easiest thing to change and see if it shakes it up. Yeah, I changed the guy who's uh, you know in this chair in your chair today, so that's that's been working so far. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Ben is uh, is off this week. We're glad to have Blake here, and he's going to stick with us for the uh, second half of this podcast. We're going to talk about what's going on on the field. Talk about what's going on and then off the field. Time to talk about baseball, which is what we're here to do. All that and so much more when we continue on at the letters. It continues on at the letters Arden Zwelling with Blake Murphy, who you can follow on Twitter at Blake Murphy ODC. Listen to him on the Fan 590 at Blue Jays Talk Plus. Mondays to Fridays, most of the time from 3 to 5 p.m. most of the time. Thanks to Nick Andrade and Mike Rogerson for producing as well. And we have arrived at Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Blake Pretty simple question for you this week as we take a look around MLB from broader perspective. Are you scared of the Orioles? Do you believe in the Orioles? Is this real? Do we have to take the Orioles seriously now as they have won 10 straight and are above 500 for the first time since, uh, I don't know, like the Renaissance? 
for the first time since Zach Britton was just <laughs> chilling in the bullpen. I think you have to take the Orioles seriously enough that they're probably not going to sell at the trade deadline. And I think that's a usually a good indicator. Like, what does it say to your fan base if you trade Trey Mancini for like a B prospect right now? Probably doesn't say a lot of good things. Like Seattle went through that last year. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is that it's maybe a half year early, but they're not the youngest team. Like they're they're bottom 10 for age on the hitting and pitching side, but they're not right at the bottom. They've graduated a bunch of prospects, but we've been hearing for years that this is a team that bottomed out and really effectively rebuilt their minor league system. Couple guys are ahead of schedule, sure, but not only have guys reached the majors, their AAA team is loaded with guys who are going to be coming up in the not-so-distant future, too. If you want to give the benefit of the doubt to any sports ownership at this point in time, well, they have infinite payroll flexibility because nobody on that team makes any sort of money. So (laughs) (laughs) not this year. Like I would be a little surprised if they snuck into the playoff spot here. I think it's just a little too early for a lot of the guys that they have there. And because this is a year early, they don't have, I don't think the upside on the pitching side to get there. But they're going to be a factor next year. They're going to be a factor as they graduate more guys. They're going to be a factor as they try to pay a single person more than the league minimum. We'll see. They're not far off if they're not for real yet. I just can't take them seriously yet. I think they are on a great run. I think it's awesome for that fan base. Imagine being an Orioles fan, like a tried and true Orioles fan over the last several years and having to suffer through those teams. So I think it's awesome that they're getting this moment in the sun. And I think that it probably helps that the expectations are so low and that nobody on that team is really playing for anything that it's just like, you just show up to the ballpark free every day. And it's like, yeah, let's just go win a ball game, right? Like you think about the burden of expectation that the Blue Jays are dealing with. Baltimore Orioles, have the complete opposite of that so it must be very freeing and i think that probably does help them sustain this run and just i you know i don't lock in on orioles games every night but whenever i watch them it seems like they are having a good time and it seems like they're enjoying each other and that they've got kind of a cool culture there that has come out of nowhere i'm sure that within their front office they're like man, we really wanted to trade half you guys. <laughs> yeah, of, this is annoying. Right? Yeah, accelerate a rebuild here. And now we can't do that because we can't send that message to our fan base. Can't send that message to your clubhouse right now either when you know your team is showing you this. If anything, like the Orioles almost have to be like measured buyers at the deadline. Like I don't know that they can do nothing. That's my question is can they just go through the deadline and do nothing? Or do they have to go out and like, Maybe we go get a rental. It's low cost, right? We're not going to trade any of those prospects that we really, really like, but we will trade a couple pieces to sustain this thing, to reward the players that have put us in this position. And hey, man, it's a wide and playoff field. Maybe something crazy happens over the final 78 games. That's the other thing about not having any payroll right now yeah. is if there's a team out there that's just looking to save money at the deadline, one of those like, hey, you give us a C minus prospect, but you eat the rest of this contract. Like basically the type of deal we used to see when there was the post deadline waiver trade thing where basically those were just salary dumps with <laughs> some guy going back. You know, the Orioles could be in a position for that because I think the payroll is like under 40 million. Rich people don't want to spend, but. <laughs> How much of that is Chris Davis? Like all of it? Yeah, (laughs) right. That's their biggest expenditure this year. So I think that's actually a really good shout. Like they could take on quote unquote bad money from another team if they're willing to dump it. Padres need to get under the CBT, I believe. 
I know the Padres are good, so they don't want to pull too much. But, you know, maybe it's a situation you send one of your army of relievers out to a team and take back an offensive piece. Because even during this stretch, like they've only nudged up to league average at the plate over the last 14 days. Like they're not tearing the cover off the baseball. They're not a scary offensive team. So maybe there's something like that you can do. Rugnet Odor is still getting every day playing time and played appearances there right and like your rotation is still a lot of uh like what jordan lyles and like spencer watkins and it's just i don't believe in it going forward but i am like fascinated by the position they've put their front office in and i'm going to be very interested to see that play out over the next three weeks five starters by the way with strikeout rates below 20%. Wow. They're the most smoke and mirrors <laughs> rotation you could imagine. And you know what else I love about it is it's given some juice to the uh, final 15 games between the Blue Jays and Orioles, right? Because we were looking forward at just, and everybody assumed, oh, well, Blue Jays still have those games because the Orioles coming up. They're going to mop up against them. That's how they're going to get back into it. Ah, not so fast. Like those are looking like much more competitive contests now. Nope. And there's actually some juice in them rather than just, oh God, the Jays are playing the Orioles again. Looking forward to that. Yeah. When it comes to the Blue Jays, we talked about this on your show. Was it this week, last week? I don't even know what time is anymore. Was it this week? This week. Where we sort of talked about the approach that we've seen from Blue Jays hitters yeah. lately, right? And I, I don't have the updated stats in front of me, but I know that generally over the last sort of two to three weeks, the walk rate has gone way down. Like it's been basically cut in half from where it was when the Blue Jays were at their best. The swing rate has gone way up to the point where the Blue Jays were like a top five swing rate team in baseball. And I think that really illustrates like where the approach has gone awry for a lot of Blue Jays hitters over the last several weeks. And I think part of that is constantly chasing games and constantly being down early. And part of that's trying to do too much and trying to get out of holes. But I think some of it too is just like not sticking to an approach. And it's just not sticking to like the swing decisions that were ingrained in this team from early on in the season of like, this is how we're going to be good. We're going to make good swing decisions. We're going to take our walks when we're there. We're not going to expand. We're going to wait for mistakes, pitches we can drive, and then we're going to like demolish them to smithereens. I think you've seen over the last few weeks, like the Blue Jays gets just getting over aggressive and just kind of coming out of that approach. And that really has compacted the effect of this recent skid. Yeah, I think so for sure. And it's a, it's a tough thing to prescribe how to get out of because yeah they're chasing a little bit more outside of the zone and that's something you'd like to clean up they're also taking more called strikes than we usually see from them and part of the reason for that is they're seeing more pitches in the zone over this stretch and even over the last month than any other team in baseball and that's a little bit of a red flag for me in terms of like there is a chance that this is just the randomness of you faced infinite Cole Irvings and you haven't had like Nestor Cortez hasn't been coming in and Garrett Cole hasn't been coming in. Like you face McClanahan, but that's about it over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So Zach Wheeler yesterday actually, and they, and they got to him real well, but pitchers have been fairly comfortable attacking the Jays in the zone. And I think that puts a hitter in a tough place, right? Where like, let's say you're Bo Bichette and you're struggling and every piece of feedback you get is like, we don't want you to not be aggressive, but you got to be more selective with it. And then you go up there and you're a little more selective and you're down 0-2 or 1-2 anyway because these teams are hammering your entire roster inside the strike zone. That's something that will probably normalize on its own. Yep. Um, but it's something that pitchers have really done to Vlad especially is uh, breaking stuff in the zone a lot 
So I do wonder if opposing teams think they've got something on the Jays and like just hammering the zone with non-fastballs is the way to get them behind in counts early. And now it's on the Jays to lay off stuff in the zone if it's not exactly what you're looking for. The wild thing with Vlad is seeing him with having like what by for tons of players would be just like a fantastic, phenomenal season in the aggregate. Like so many players in this game would take Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s season this year and still viewing it as somewhat of a disappointment, right? Because his ceiling is so high and his bar is so high and the we grade him on such an absurd curve, but he's kind of shown that like he is just different as a hitter and he should be judged differently he showed that on wednesday against zach wheeler like that pitch that he hit out like that swing that he took i don't know how he gets that ball out guerrero reaches for one and he's hit it fairly well to deep left gone how in the world did that go out it shows you what a talent he is when he can reach for a ball like that and still hit it out. That's a special talent right there. Home run number 20 for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I don't know that he knows how he gets that ball out. I think it's just innate and natural. But I do know that 99 out of 100 baseball players swing that way and they hit like a weak pop-up. And Vlad just reaches out with one hand and flicks it out front. He's off balance. He's leaning over. It's a nasty pitch. And he flicks it over the wall like it's you know, th- these are the kind of things he can do right zach wheeler did not sound thrilled about that he's like yeah yeah i missed my spot by a little bit it was down but it was down middle and then he does that like what do you even do as a pitcher and it was one of the like quote-unquote good misses right some guys miss their spot and it's a cookie up over the plate it was a good miss where he missed down right and he missed out of what should be the happy zone that's vlad ask Eric cole about it right like that's the game that game in new york that has stuck with me all all years what Vlad did to Garrett Cole that day and like one of the best pitchers on the planet had him tipping his cap and just incredulous after the game about the way like Vlad had just stolen his lunch repeatedly but it's like Vlad's having this this year that's so hard to analyze whether things are going well or going poorly because like he's well above league average hitter and he's having a very strong year and he's going to start in the all-star game as a first baseman on merit like obviously he's got a recognizable name but i think on merit he should be starting the all-star game it also just watch him every night feels like he doesn't look like himself and it's so obvious that there's so much more in there and i don't have numbers for this this is just something that i feel i feel like he misses his pitch a lot it's kind of gets back to what you're saying how he is being attacked on the plate a lot like it's kind of maddening the amount of times he will just foul straight back a pitch that i think in 2021 he would have hit to the moon it's very hard to analyze what's happening with him right now it is and and the optimist would say well he's not that far off like there's nothing there's nothing physical at play there's nothing you know fundamentally different about vladimir guerrero jr he's just you know, he's a, a split second here or, or a tenth of an inch off the barrel of the bat here. And if he can just correct a little bit, he's going to get really, really hot at some point. That would be the optimist view. The pessimist view is without having that sort of red flag blinking light item to focus on, what are you doing? Like, I've never hit at that elite level. And I'm sure Vlad has an idea. He is a very studious and very smart guy from outside they're like ah you're just off by a little bit it's not like a hitch in the swing anything like that it's just off a little bit 
it's crazy that off a little bit gets you a 488 <laughs> slugging percentage over half a season. You know, I talked to Ben Nicholson Smith about this on my show the week prior, and we talked about who do you think could have the biggest impact on this team, you know, in the second half versus the first half? Like, who's the biggest swing piece? And my pick was Vlad, not because he's been bad, but because we saw the la- the first half of last season, what a locked-in Vlad does the teams for half a year, and it's MVP. So, I don't know. I don't think he's that far off from that. I just don't know exactly how I'd try to nudge him that way. Well, and if you get those um, 30 points of WRC plus that you were talking about earlier that you've mm-hmm. lost from Vlad, if you get those back over the second half and to get those back, he's going to have to actually outperform that 160 WRC plus. Right? Yeah. Like, if you get that Vlad over the second half, that is going to have such a much more monumental impact on win expectancy than how often are we DHing and catching Alejandro Kirk <laughs> or then some of the other stuff that we talk about with this with this team like is Bo Bichette hitting second or should he be moved down getting like a true Vlad performance honestly will be a massive difference maker over the second half of the season much more so than a lot of the other sort of around the fringes marginal stuff that we talk about yeah and like to kind of try to quantify it you know if you take something like wrc plus or vlad's overall offensive contributions and let's take the base running out of it um and even the positional adjustment like just with the stick he's been worth a little over 13 runs this year per fan graphs that's cool 13 runs is good he was at 56 last year (laughs) like let's not even say the wrc plus comes out to 166 this year let's just say you get it the rest of the way You're talking about a jump from 13 runs in the first half to like 25 runs. That's like double Vlad, basically. Like, I know that sounds silly because it's like 130 WRC plus going to 166 or whatever. But the jump from being terrible to slightly less bad is not as meaningful as the jump from good to great in terms of impact on an offense. I think the Blue Jays are just built to bludgeon teams offensively. Yeah. Like, ultimately. like, And I think, obviously, they need bullpen upgrades. Obviously, they need another depth starter. But they're not going to become one of the best pitching teams in baseball at the trade deadline. Like, you just can't make that kind of impact. They're built to win 5-4 games, not 3-2 games. Dude, 8-4 games. They're, like, built to score 6-8 to eight runs a night. Like, they just need to up the amount of runs that they are scoring and get some of those offensive performances going because that's going to paper over a lot of the problems with the pitching staff like that is it's again we're drawing parallels to past seasons but it's very much what happened over the last half of last year and over the back half of 2015 as well right and totally different clubs there are two ways to improve your bullpen's performance in high leverage situations the first one is to add bullpen arms the second is to not be in high leverage situations be up by three or four runs all the time. And that's that sounds like uh, why don't they build the whole plane out of whatever? Yeah. But like that's what they did last year a lot of the time. That's honestly what happened over the back half of 2021. They just removed the high leverage situations. You're tired of seeing Adam Simber in those big leverage spots or you know, even like Tim Meza hasn't looked like himself lately, although he looked really good on Wednesday. I got to give him credit for that. But like prior to that, the velo had been down and the command had been spotty. Yeah, if you're tired of seeing that, like just don't have those situations. <laughs> They'll be fine because I think this team is well built for a playoff series. Honestly, when you look at the top of a starting rotation with a Gosman, Manoa and Brios. Brios looking like himself again, if that continues, like when healthy, 
amazing. Like that's a great top three for a playoff series. I think you feel really strong about this lineup. You would like that it was better balanced and that there was more of a sort of an impact lefty bat in there. So you're not as easy to match up against late in games, but you should feel good about your offense in a playoff series. I mean, you just need to get those outcomes again from this offense. It has been happening to this point, and it really is inherent on your best players to do that. Like, I don't know that fiddling around the margins with batting order positions or with, you know, playing time for Espinal v. Biggio, whatever, like a lot of this stuff that we spend all day talking about, I just don't think it's going to be as impactful as Bo Bichette having the season that we know he's capable of, of Vlad having that season we know he's capable of, of Teoscar Hernandez having a season that looks a lot more like his 2020 or his 2021. Yeah, and we I, I laid out a little earlier in the podcast, right? Like your four best hitters are all underperforming and maybe all four of them don't bounce back. But if a couple of them do, if they all nudge just a little bit forward, things can pick up pretty quickly and this is the thing sometimes i think people forget about offense too not to you know invent a guy or whatever but it it can be something that's a little weird to wrap your head around because we're used to like oh well you have so much offense address the defense but there's actually the opposite of diminishing returns to an offense where if two of these guys get going awesome and then if three of them get going there's an exponential effect because you're then making fewer outs and there are more guys on base for those other guys and like there is a real velocity to a lineup getting a couple guys going at the same time and I think you know we've seen what the Jays look like when that's going not as much this year but you know what it looks like you know what it feels like just to touch on pitching before we wrap because it's incredible we've come this far without even talking about pitching which is obviously the biggest weakness of this team where's your confidence level with Max Castillo going forward what do you think his best role is Going forward, Yusei Kikuchi's throwing bullpens again. Obviously, the neck is throwing, is feeling better again. Like, how, how do you feel about how that's all breaking down towards the back end of the Blue Jays rotation? The Max Castillo story has been fun. It's been interesting to see the double A numbers and then he gets bumped to triple A. I streamed one of his Buffalo Bison starts just to check out what it was about. And it's an interesting prospect development because he's still only 23, but he wasn't really like a prospect, right? Like he was just a guy. And then there are these reports that he changed his offseason regimen and his between starts regimen. Weirdly, you know, this would normally be a red flag for a guy coming up for me. His walk rate spiked a lot this year, but it was in the service of missing a lot more bats. Um, So you maybe get a little confidence in the stuff changing with that little bit of extra velocity. I think his ideal role is about what he's done so far, which is your sixth starter down at AAA or possibly bullpens thinned out. You need a multi-inning guy. Like, I don't want to say the former Ross Stripling role because there are like seven guys in baseball who can do the Ross Stripling role well. But I think something like that, maybe the Trent Thornton role is a better way to put it from a couple years ago. I think, you know, he's AAA starting depth. And and if your bullpen's particularly thinned out, call him up, let him give you two innings here and there. If he's going to be a full-time major league starter at some point, he's got some polishing to do, certainly, before he's there. Yeah, Ross Stripling's kind of like the ceiling of that role. Like He does that role as well as anybody does, and Trent Thornton probably does it more so in like a, a league average fashion. And I agree, that's where Max Castillo's best utility on this club 
is yeah is just yeah as that like swing man long man in the bullpen we need you for a spot start or we need you to help us on a double header or whatever eat some innings like you can do that you can start a game in a pinch but mostly we're going to use you as length out of the bullpen like i think he's a big leaguer a big league starter with just like the 93 mile an hour fastball and change up that doesn't really miss bats he had really good results against seattle but he also only had two swinging strikes and I do think that the stuff will get figured out eventually by big league hitters. And obviously there's the benefit of unfamiliarity. He's fought his way up the system, mm-hmm. but we're not talking about a guy with like big time, huge, you know, swing and miss tools here. Right. So the Blue Jays are going to have to be careful with his deployment going forward, but he's look, he's filling a hole for them right now. And he's taking that job, right? Like Casey Lawrence didn't take it. Thomas Hatch didn't take it. All you can ask for. Exactly. Like literally the what ninth, man up because Ryu so Stripling comes in as the six and then you try Hatch you try Lawrence and he probably didn't even start the season ninth on the depth chart because he was in double a like I'd imagine they thought they would go to like a Nick Allgaier or a Sean Anderson or something like that before him out in Francis is another one yeah this is found money for the Jays and no I don't think I don't think guys are going to continue to hit only 200 against the a fastball that has some life but isn't super deceptive or anything like that. The Jays don't need him to have a 200 batting average against. They just need him to five and dive is a huge win if he gives you that. You know, three and flee if we want to call it that on a bullpen day uh, as the kind of opener. Like, like the bar here is pretty low and Castillo has very clearly cleared that bar so far. Nate Pearson would have been ahead of him on that depth chart to start the season. Anthony Kay would have been as well. So yeah, never heard of either of those guys. Yeah, they don't. Really? They don't exist. <laughs> but here's where push comes to shove with that. If you want to get Max Castillo into that long relief bullpen role, the guy taking his spot in the rotation is going to be Yusei Kikuchi, and he's throwing bullpens again. Physically, clearly, he is feeling better after he went on the IL. The kind of weird thing about the spot where he's at right now is you need him in the zone. You need him throwing strikes, but you don't know if he's in the zone and you don't know if he's controlling his fastball until he's on the mound pitching. And he is ostensibly out for health reasons, but even on the mound pitching, then clearly he's feeling physically well, but he has to be on the mound pitching in order to prove that he's throwing strikes. And if he's not throwing strikes, you can't really bring him back. Like this is kind of the difficult scenario for the Blue Jays. How do you kind of play this forward with Yusei Kikuchi if you're the Blue Jays? And he's going to return to this club. He's going to pitch again for the Blue Jays this season yeah he's got two and a half years left on a very expensive deal but no the way you lay it out it's like Erwin Schrodinger was a pitching coach instead of a physicist it's like it's like okay well if he the second you put him back on the mound is when you find out if he's bad is uh is the tough thing so I think the all-star break is well timed here if Max Castillo gives them another good outing on Friday or Saturday, whichever one they end up going with him for. And that allows you to even give him one start out of the break in that fifth spot. I think that's helpful because one thing you can do with Kikuchi as well, and this doesn't solve the issue that you just laid out, but you can you get 30 days on a rehab assignment, right? You can send him to AAA and have him work through it for a couple starts without the optical hit of being sent down to the minors. The toughest part of that, though, is that we've seen Kikuchi put it together for two games and then go completely away from it again. So I don't know. Maybe Danny Jansen helps. Maybe the extended kind of mental break helps. I don't know, but you're paying him $36 million over three years. He's going to keep getting shots uh, in the rotation. You got to think about who his agent is as well. 
one S Boris. And, uh, I don't know that you're going to bury a Boris client in the minors for 30 years without ruffling some feathers without damaging a relationship there. Like if he's healthy and available to play, like he's going to want to be contributing. He's going to want to be pitching. So it's going to be a very interesting thing for the blue Jays to, you know, monitor going forward, but like get ready for Kikuchi starts again. And moving him to the bullpen doesn't make any sense because his struggles have been, with fastball command and early in games. And those are the two things like if you were if a guy was a relief candidate, you'd be like, well, he's doing really well first time through the order and he can at least attack the zone. And nope. No. And you've really got to figure some things out about Yusei Kikuchi as well this year, because that's going to inflect your decision making this upcoming offseason of like you already need to go out and get another starter for 2023. It's why I think the Blue Jays need to go and um, aggressively pursue starters available with term at this deadline and pay like a high price for those starters. Pablo Lopez, let's go. Sure, right? But like you might not like that it has to be Alejandro Kirk going the other way, right? Like it might have to be a very high price, but like that's what it costs to get those guys, right? If you can package a couple of upper level prospects and not even subtract from your major league team, like even better. But it's going to be interesting how the Blue Jays can kind of thread that needle with the prospect quote-unquote capital that they have now and with some of the contract status as a player is on their major league club but I think you need to go out and look for this year's Jose Barrios you need to go out and look for a starter with term because you have already one hole in your rotation in 2023 in Hunjin Ryu and you've got the back half of 2022 to not only win and make it into the postseason but figure out what you have in Yusei Kikuchi and just how realistic it is that he is going to be like a real contributor in 2023 because if he if he really is shot and if it really isn't going to work for him and if it really is a sunk cost and a write-off now you got to fill two holes next year and now that really changes your strategy going forward and you don't have stuff coming up through the minors like we've gone through the triple a starting pitching options this year you could go down as far as double a hayden younger still only 21 uh yosfer zulueta is getting rushed through the minors but most prospect people i've spoke to think he's pretty clearly a a bullpen arm and then yeah the name everyone's excited about is 19 years old Mm -hmm. ricky tiedemann like the only pitcher they have on baseball america's latest top 100 farm system rankings nick frazzo's another one and he's closer to 24 but he's also still in high a maybe one of those guys gets hot shotted through but the solutions are at least for the five spot and maybe for the four spot depending on what happens with Kikuchi and Stripling's free agency, mm-hmm. are coming externally. I was going to raise Frasso as another name that could move quickly, but you can't enter 2023 yeah. relying on like the major league debut of a prospect, relying on somebody that has not that is unproven at the highest level. Like You just need more certainty than that if you're this team. like Remember, these are the years where you were getting the like quote-unquote surplus value of Bo Bichette, of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Not so much this year, but to this point, Teoscar Hernandez, who's been paid way below market rate. Like This is the time with, by the way, like big-time deals for George Springer, for Kevin Gosman, for Jose Barrios, guys in their prime, making big money, established stars. Like this is it's win now. And I get it. The org depth is great for once Vlad and Bo and those guys are making full freight. Yeah. You need the org depth to come in and be the inexpensive guys underneath. But that's not the spot on the curve you're at right now. It would be quite the squandered opportunity to not get something out of this group this year. And the window is supposed to go on further than that. But like in, in terms of this financial structure, like between now and 2024, you got to strike. Yeah, the the window is is every is forever. 
that's what it's supposed to be. The window is meant to be sustainable. We'll see if they can do it. Blake, you sustained me through this podcast when uh, when Ben was off. So thank you for jumping in. Blue Jays Talk Plus on Fan590 at Blake ODC on Twitter. Any parting thoughts, anything final that you would like to give the ATL audience before I let you go? I guess the only thing I would say is like you certainly root for the Jays to turn things around, and I do think there are better days ahead. You don't need to use that to bury Charlie. You you just like it's done. You, if you got what you wanted and you wanted out, that's that's fine. But uh, you know, just look forward. Don't look don't look backward if things turn around here. I hope we said this before. I can't even remember what we said before, but Charlie's a great man. Like truly genuine, yeah. caring man. Like just like salt of the earth, dude. You know, the Julia Budzinski tragedy and the Mark Budzinski situation last week showed that in spades and the way that he was there for not only a coach on staff, but like for a friend. Charlie's just like an incredibly selfless and caring and dedicated and passionate individual who earned the shot that he got, really. Which is the other thing that I actually really need to say is that like he earned the job, the opportunity to manage in the big leagues. Look up dude's minor league track record. He earned every bit of this opportunity that he got. Who knows if he'll get another opportunity to run a big league bench, but I do think there should be opportunities for him if he wants them to continue working in baseball because like just a good baseball man and I think a really valuable part of any staff. So That'd be my vouch for Charlie Montoyo. Say, be be a great bench coach somewhere, I'd imagine. And I know he's got a ton of friends around baseball, and people speak highly of him. And not everyone's meant for for that chair for the long run uh, in every team situation. So uh, that's all. Keep those things separate. And which is to say, as well, John Schneider, incredibly caring, incredibly like a different personality, but like incredibly hardworking. Somebody who deserves this shot as well. Worked hard through the minors, has grinded along the way. A lot of people don't see like how hard it is to be a coach in the minor leagues um to be a coach in the major leagues as well like those guys are dealing with the travel they're dealing with the grind they're dealing with the pressure they work insanely long days they have a lot of demands of their time and a lot of pressure and a lot of expectations as well they sacrifice a lot as well in their personal lives and time with family um and things like that like these are all for the most part fathers they have kids like they have you know all kinds of stuff going on and they put 12, 14, 15 hours of the day in at the ballpark every day for six months. It's a grind. It takes a toll. So uh, John Schneider, very deserving of the opportunity he's going to get. Really interested to see how it plays out for him. Really excited for him. Just looking forward to seeing where this thing goes, man. Winning baseball is uh, more fun to cover than losing baseball. And the lulls you get from the odd winning streak can freshen things up, especially ahead of the deadline. But we're all in agreement that we think this is a better team than they've shown so far. And this will be a nice point of delineation to reflect back on. And, you know, hopefully the it's not half a season at this point, but hopefully the second half is a, a more fun one than the first. Half. <laughs> there it is, Blake. Blake plays us out. Thanks so much to Blake Murphy for joining me. Bendix and Smith will be back next week. Want to thank Mike Rogerson and Nick Andrade for producing. Want to thank all of you for listening. As always, this has been At The Letters. The Letters.